Welcome to the New Age Sage Podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. Today's guest is Derek Burton. He is a conscious explorer. We talk about psychedelics and how to heal yourself. Please like and subscribe. Thank you. So my, my producer labeled you as the mushroom man. <laughs> so I want to know what, what got you down that, that road and what made him, you know, give you that label and how you got into psychedelics in the in the first place yeah um so i was raised a jehovah's witness which is very anti-drug intense oh it's super intense were were you intense about it when you were were oh for sure believed wholeheartedly it was all i ever knew i was i mean i was born and raised in it um and so i think 18 19 years old i i left the church and wandered i mean that's a whole story for itself but kind of wandered trying to find my way got curious about what i believed and started to kind of dive into it um and in doing that i started coming across kind of mentors through the books and the podcasts and the videos that i was watching um and i kept seeing a pattern and that pattern was meditation and psychedelics and i was just like against them. I was against drugs. Like I, I hadn't really addressed that viewpoint from my my lifestyle as a Jehovah's Witness yet. And so, yeah, I, I kind of skirted around it, never touched it, but I kept seeing the pattern. Um, and then an opportunity with a friend of mine um, came up and he was like, they, a couple of my buddies put together a trip. Um, we went out to a friend's property in Bastrop and we just did a night with like four of us and took two and a half grams of mushrooms. This was my first interaction with it. And it was amazing. Um, it was one of those things where I understood why I kept reading about it. I was like, wow, this is insane. Like I I had this moment where my heart started racing and my breath, like I I felt anxious. And that was the one moment that I got scared in, but then I sat with it. I breathed through it and I was perfectly fine. I was able to enjoy the rest of the trip. And after that one, I started looking into like, okay, what is this thing? And I'd studied it for about a year where I was, my curiosity was there. And then I set up a time with my buddy to go out to the woods and we did a four gram mushroom trip. Um, And it was one of those moments where My friend that I went with had done it in college um, and went too far with it and just kind of stayed away from it for an extended period of time, like probably 20 years. And this reawakened it within him. But I had done so much research on like (laughs) what they, the research that was done in the 60s and like just tried to craft an experience for myself out of that based on the knowledge that I knew. And it was impactful and it left me going, it left me seeing how wrong I was and that my perspective was so limited um, that I had held on to for so long. It was very binary. There was a right and a wrong. There was either a good way to do things or a wrong way to do things or a bad way to do things. And that flipped a switch. So after that, I think I spent about nine months like really diving into myself where I just, I simplified my life as much as possible. Um, like made sure my bills were, were good to go. Like I got rid of any excess noise that there was and I was living on Rainy Street and I'd, I'd moved to Rainy Street expecting to kind of party a little bit and have a good time. And I went more inward in that moment than, than I have ever been in my entire life. Um, and nine months later, I just had this moment where everything just calmed down. My mind quieted and I kind of reached this flipping of the switch where I think it was more of like a, a positivity switch versus a negativity switch. And I was looking at the world through a fresh lens that was positive, mostly positive or more positive than negative. Um, and after that, I 
wondered why it took me 35 years <laughs> to go through that, why nobody had explained that to me. I was looking at this thing as if it was a lost ritual because I was aware that it had been a ritual that was taking place in our society for a long time. Um, so at that point, what's the next thing you do? You want to share it. And I had to try to learn the language around it, how to explain what it was. But I always view starting closest with any things you're going to do as the best place to start. So I started with myself, made a pretty significant change in myself. Um, my brother was graduating high school at that time and getting ready to go off to college. And so I decided I wanted to share that experience with him. Um, and so he turned 18. I basically put together a playlist based on everything that I had found, uh, booked a trip to Washington. So flew into Seattle and then we went on a five day backpacking trip up into the Cascade mountains. And that was the first time that I really like shared that experience and it made a significant difference in him. And then my family started getting curious. And in the meantime, other people started getting curious about what I was doing and the changes that were happening to me or that they were observing in me. Um, and it just kind of materialized from there. So I think at this point, I've probably done in the neighborhood of like 60 guided trips um, somewhere in that vicinity. It's become a regular thing that I do in the wintertime. Um, and it's just, it's evolved and kind of gotten to a place where it's a pretty powerful experience. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a journey. It started with myself and then it started with my family, friends, um, and it's become something where I think it gets sought out a little bit at this point, which is interesting. So it was the, it was the first mushroom trip that kind of sparked everything for you? that it made you aware of certain things you were unconscious to. Because in my experience, that's what flipped the switch in me, is when I was in college, I was I was 19. Mm -hmm. um, I was, I thought I was fine in, in life. I, I did mushrooms, I, I, pretty intense dose. I also was drinking a bunch of other drugs at the same time, but still affected me in some way. Had you been doing them before then, or was no, this was the, the first No, this the first trip. Okay. And what it did is it made me realize I was depressed and suicidal. I had no idea. Which, which, which is like, what sparked me was it like, how the fuck did I go, you know years of my life not knowing I was suicidal like not being aware and not being aware I was yeah. I didn't want to be alive that for me was a switch Oof. where I, I was like holy yeah. fuck and that 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 started my journey of yeah. like of just realizing that I have not paid attention to anything in my life that's a significantly impactful thing to wake up to yeah to be like that's where I'm at yeah wow. and just thinking yeah. I have to the next day I got sober I was like you know I, I have to for a while and then I got, got back but it was I, I realized that there has to be I have to create a path out of this shit for sure so was what did the first experience tell you and how did it shift you to create who you are in some way? Or I mean, didn't, the, or did it not? The first experience overcame my fear of it. That's really what it did more than anything. I don't, I don't remember that first two and a half gram trip having anything super insightful because it's such an intense experience. Um, there was stuff like, I mean, my buddy put his boot on like the ring that was around the fire and all of us were certain that it was melting. It, the next day it didn't melt. Like the visual component as, uh, of it was, it's, it's a, it's a significant stimulant. So I think my brain and my mind was so focused on the experience itself that the only really introspective thing I remember getting out of it was the fact that I overcome, I overcame the anxiety that was associated with it. I had a picture of it in my head of what this experience was and that experience at the end of it was no longer that way. That's That was the biggest shift and that just kind of opened the door for me to be willing to take a big leap with it. And I'm kind of a lunatic so I, I tend to jump <laughs> and leap before I understand exactly what's going on. But I had taken my time. I understood what this stuff was. The curiosity had been there. Um, but that experience was kind of needed for me to be able to flip the switch and to do it in an introspective way. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely what that first one. Remember you asked the question, your first 
section of you talking, you said, you know, what is this? This is a psychedelic compound. What if you could explain to people, you know, and because we think of mushrooms just like a, a mushroom, but what is it actually doing to us? You know, what, what what is this thing? You know, how how is it affecting us? Yeah, I think I mean, there's a book. Um, is it Michael Pollan? How to change your mind? That that's that's probably the one that I recommend the most because that was like a 65 year old man never touching drugs for his entire life and then coming at it with a with the journalist's mind. Um, and one of the things that he said is like, if you look at the brain and the neural pathways as like a pathway in, in the snow, so it snowed, uh, there hasn't been snow for like a couple of weeks and somebody has been walking to and from school or their house or whatever. And there's this deep path where they've been walking, that's the easiest route to take. Why would you tread into new snow every single time when you can walk this well-worn path? What he compared psychedelics to is a fresh snow that just cleans the landscape. So that those paths are no longer there and you're kind of open to wandering and figuring out new paths rather than going down the routines um, that are the well-worn, the easiest paths. And sometimes those easiest paths come as a byproduct of just our experience. They're not things that we chose. Um, and this gives you an opportunity to kind of rewrite that landscape and find new ways to do things. And sometimes you go right back down the same path, but it gives you that opportunity to kind of get outside of yourself, look at the landscape in a fresh way and go, you know what, I've been walking like this in a zigzag motion to get to this location. There's a direct path that I can do. And that, that out of body experience that people talk about that, um, getting into the observer perspective is really what I think that psilocybin does so well is it just allows you to see yourself and all of the information contained in yourself, all of the experiences contained in yourself from a fresh perspective or an outside perspective. And like therapy is great and does a lot of things. It helps provide tools. But a therapist, you can only communicate through language as much time as you spend with that person. You've spent a lifetime with yourself. So the ability to actually take a step back, observe all of those experiences and reframe them is kind of the best thing that, that I think psilocybin allows us to do. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. You kind of, you said, I think in, in life you only can look at yourself with the ego and it just, the, the egoistic structures of the mind make you only focus on things that benefit you, you know, to survive, to, to be in, in this mode you always know and familiar, familiar, familiarity. When you take psychedelics, you're entering kind of a, 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 I say call it God consciousness in a way where you're just you know, observing your, your own life as a, as a third-party actor. You're kind of like this observer looking at your life like this video game character. Like, yeah. Okay, how have I molded this character incorrectly? You know, what are these things that I'm doing that have to, have to change? But on a, on a point, you said that you can see a path in that moment. That's powerful about it. But where I kind of see the problem with psychedelics, and maybe I want to start debate a bit, is that I'm a big fan of them, but I'm also not a fan of them because... The actual work is the is outside the psychedelic. The actual work is is you know you see the path. It's beautiful, right? But that can be addicting. Like seeing this awareness. Oh my God, I have to do these things, yada yada. But then walking through the fire is the real work. Like seeing, oh shit, I have for me. Like seeing, I was suicidal. I could have just left it there, right? Being like, fuck, you know, oh shit, and then kept. And then it doesn't the, change yeah. it, right? Like it yeah. doesn't take away the fact that you are in that position. Yeah. It just allows you to see it. Yeah, and then the real, is... the real work is being is, is seeing the path and walking through it, right? I think psychedelics create the blueprint. That you have to follow in reality, but walking through the blueprint, walking through the fire, is the work. Yeah. So in in your guiding, I think it's like there's there's psychedelics and there's the, the integration period and then the guidance. It's important. How are you kind of seeing some of these problems and making sure people don't fall into them and guiding them correctly? I mean, everybody's going to do their own thing. Yeah. So there's, I think, as a guide, that's the key thing to keep in mind. All you can do is provide an example 
that people may want to learn from um, and then try to give them the tools that are available, but they have to do the work. Yep. And I think it's exactly right what you said is like, this is like all of a sudden you're walking aimlessly through the woods and someone pops a map into your hand. You can keep walking aimlessly. You can put that thing away in your pocket and just keep on walking. You don't have to do anything with it. But once you have the map, you see these different locations, you may see paths that you can take. And that is an opportunity to start being aware or conscious of how you're treating yourself, where you're going, how you're getting there. All of those things are super important. And I, I agree wholeheartedly as I think psychedelics, I've seen it be used as the solution and it's not. All it is is raising awareness. Yep, and I awareness. think there's a cycle that you have to go through is when you raise awareness, then you have to figure out to, what work needs to be done. Do you even have the tools to do it? You may not. So once you raise your awareness on that level, you may have to go through an education period where you are now giving yourselves the tools to actually deal with the issues that you observed. And then you've got to do the work to change those issues or to change your behavior in order to get out of the place that you saw yourself in. Um, and then it's a matter of repeating. Like once you're able to kind of clean that little area up, now raising awareness is a good idea. But if you continue to raise awareness over and over and over again, all I do, all I think that does is create anxiety because now you're seeing yep. not just a map of where you are, you have the good world point. map and everything yeah. that's happening around it. And you're so overwhelmed with knowledge and the inability to do anything about it. And that's yeah. a scary place to that's exist. Great, great point, man. I completely agree. No, not many people are talking about that. And I think it's similar to like a, it's a bad analogy, but like, you know, if you do, try to download Ten movies onto your iPad at the same time. They're all going to freeze, right? Yeah. And then they're all they're all canceled. You get in your flight and you have no no movies. Yeah. I think it's the same with with uh, universal downloads in the sense that you know if you if you take do ten psychedelic trips and you have one uh, thesis for each trip, something you have to fix. You can't do all ten at the same time. You, you just fucking can't. In my experience, like I, I've gotten like I have a list of things I, have to, I call them codes that I, but I realize about myself that I have to download into, into my body. And I used this to try is a and, process that you use after you do a trip, or what? Yeah, in general, I, okay. I, I'm on psychedelics without psychedelics. Yep. That's kind of like yeah, my yeah, life. Exactly. So, like, I I have a folder on my phone just called codes, where I write yeah. down all the shit I have to integrate in my life. For example, like one today was uh, the other day is uh, you know don't focus on anything that takes your power away in my mind. Like I can't. That's one thing I'm focusing on now. But what I used to do is I used to have twenty. I write it, put them in front of my face every day. I try to download twenty at the same time. I, I go crazy. I, I couldn't do it. I think that's what psychedelics are doing in the sense that. I meet people and I no hate, but they just go in to take ayahuasca mushrooms like every week and all this stuff. I'm like, dude, like, what the fuck? You're going to go crazy in a the sense. They're like, addicted to awareness. Yeah, exactly. Your exact point is that 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 too, but it's also this thing that download one awareness at a time. Like, I've, I've tried to do it the cocky way with 30 in my, my head and going for it, but they all disappeared. Like, to truly download something into your body, it's different to be aware of it and then actually embody it in, in your system. That's a huge fucking process that, that takes discipline and dedication. So ah, do you agree with that statement? How, how are you aware of that in your own journey? Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, psychedelics play a different role in my life at this point in time. And, and a big part of that is because I guess stumbling across the things that I, that I did stumble across, um, as far as with it, like meditation, yoga were always these like things that I could control rather than a psychedelic being this chemical that I had to take to get to that place. So once I was aware that that place, that observer mentality existed, I kind of wanted to learn how to get there on my own. Like I didn't want to have to sit there and spend a whole day, um, being, 
out of my mind and not being functional in order to have that awareness. That didn't seem like a, a solid path for me. Yeah, so I immediately started going down the road of the work and looking back at like, how has this stuff existed for forever? And there, there are gurus out there that talk about it. Like, don't do psychedelics. Don't do psychedelics. Like this is the path to go down the path of meditation or yoga or whatever, whatever practice helps you become more aware and, and take care of yourself. And I, I do have a disagreement with that though, is I, I, I think that comes from a place of not realizing how hard it is to do that work. When someone's done that work for their entire lives or gone through it, they forget about the moment that it's switched. And to me, where psychedelics come in so usefully is to make it, it not to make someone, to allow someone to become aware of themselves and of that process. And then if there's a support structure that's there afterward to say, now that you've become aware of these things, here is how you do the work. And that is, that's one thing I think is really beautiful about Austin is there are so many people here that are traveling those roads. And it's amazing because one of the things I'll do is like, I don't play well in that middle ground afterwards. I'm very good at showing someone the door, creating enough enthusiasm or curiosity to, to show that door of awareness to someone. I have an experience that I've built that helps them see that. I have an integration process afterward, but to do the work, I'm not a yoga instructor. I'm not a meditation teacher. I'm not a breath work practitioner, like, but I know a ton and I try to kind of feed people off into that after they've kind of gone through that integration moment is to go, here's what's helped me. Here are the people that I think are really good at doing it. So you don't have to go spend as much time searching. Um, and then it's a matter of, again, doing that work, repeating it. And it's, it is a cyclical thing. Yeah. Um, and the question is, is does that cyclical thing require psychedelics afterwards? Absolutely not. If you start doing the work and doing the practice, my practice every morning is to sit for an hour and meditate. Well, um, that keeps me in a state of constantly examining myself every morning. And that's actually a much more sustainable path than going out to the woods for three days uh, and, and taking psychedelics and just completely doing a hard reset, which I still do probably once a year um, with my buddies. It's become kind of a ritual um, that we've done and we've introduced it to different friends and we kind of have this group of guys that goes out there and everybody fights it every year, but then we do it and they're like, oh man, I needed that. Um, so even when the practice is there, it's start, it's good to do it. But I think the practice is integral. Yeah. I actually, actually, I swore off psychedelics about a year and a bit ago. Yeah. Um, again, I'm not against them. It's just, I used to do a lot of them and it reached a point where I realized I was addicted to that kind of awareness and, and accessing that God consciousness in a way. I kind of, That's I think powerful. that, <laughs> yeah, I think that what we experience psychedelics, I think it's the next evolution of reality in my, in my understanding. I think that's where we go in some way. I think that's where we go back to once this all ends. But I think we're here for a reason. We're here in this, in this human experience to experience duality and all the pain and suffering. And we kind of get addicted to wanting to experience life in that, in that second realm. So why I stopped is I realized I have to master this game. I have to use the knowledge. I'm very thankful to psychedelics because to your point, I would have never have seen a way outside my ego if I didn't take them. So I'm very glad I did. But I'm also glad I've decided to... It sounds to, like you might not have been here either, Like, which is... That's, that's wild to hear the intensity of that experience. Yeah, yeah so I, um, now I'm you know, just trying to master this, this, this evolution of just What's learning to be human. <sighs> I mean, that's your point. I think I'm not like most people. I mean that egoistically you know, at all. I mean it in the sense that... You're unique, right? Everybody's yeah, unique. I'm, I'm, all, I'm always kind of on psychedelics. I'm always in the observer. I've, I've kind of got to a place where I'm always an observer. Were you like that before? Were you a... I mean, some people are very... I, I was, but I was scared of it i was ashamed of it 
Um, I didn't know how to handle it. That got me addicted to drugs because I didn't know how to ha- I just didn't know what to do. I was always super aware. But my way I live life is I catch every thought I have like that. I analyze it like, like that. It's just the way the way I am. So I don't need it as much now. It, mm-hmm. It's just I'm kind of in that, as you said, I'm in that observer state almost all the time. Even yeah. if I'm in a point it's of beautiful. suffering or if I'm stuck in something, I'm always like looking at myself like, like what the fuck? Like a, like a third party. It's it's a space to be, you know, but hearing you and the way you talk, I rarely meet people who are as obsessed. I mean that literally obsessed with their mind, obsessed with consciousness, consciousness and evolving themselves that I see in you this lens of reality of always like doing the inner work that you're trying to, turning back always to how can I, you know, better my mind. I went so long without it. It's yeah. contrast. Like I literally feel like I've led this life of a pendulum that went like was way over here, swung way over here, and now it's trying to find that centerpiece. Yeah. So take me to way over here. Take me to you on the complete opposite end. Uh, before psychedelics or? Yeah, like, before, when you were like man. before your, your, your story, man. I mean, the this is, I know this is not everybody's experience as a Christian. And that's something I've done a lot of work on myself is to kind of accept what Christianity does, the value that it brings. But as Jehovah's Witness, it's it's more, it's very fundamentalist. So everything in the Bible is taken extremely literally. And I still, to this day, like my, I can see it in my language. And it's one of those things as you're unwinding like behaviors and going through those things, that's a really core aspect of myself that I'm still focused on. I, I, my girlfriend and I have been having this conversation and she's really good at paying attention to when that binary thinking and language kicks in. And it's something I very much want to evolve but that is a core aspect of who I am and, and, and how I got to this point, which is that binary way of thinking is that there is a right way to do things. And that is just incorporated to you, especially from birth. Like I never knew anything else other than what I was taught as a Jehovah's Witness. It's a very insulated community. So you don't spend time like in school. I didn't play sports. I didn't get to hang out with other kids I went to a public school, but I wasn't able to really socialize with them outside of school. So you're always kind of, again, what are, outside. What are the core things they're indoctrinating you with as a Jehovah's Witness as a kid? Like, What are they kind of... The, yeah, the biggest aspects is, again, it's a fundamentalist view of Christianity. So um, there are some differences. They don't believe in like a heaven and hell. Um, they believe that there's like 144,000 people who are have been basically assigned a role to go to heaven and rule with God. And then the rest of everybody else is going to either just die, like there isn't a hell, so you're not sitting there being put in this position where you're fearful of being tortured forever. Um, but the uh, what you're either going to die and just not exist, or you're going to live on earth forever after a certain point in time. There's basically Armageddon is going to come, cleanse the earth of all the nastiness stuff, and then you're going to exist in a paradise on earth which as time has gone on, I realize that paradise is now and yeah. here. <laughs> and that's really what your focus needs to be is, is creating that reality in this existing moment because it's the only one you have. Um, but yeah, those core tenants are, are that. And, and so their role and how they view themselves in society is to not get involved in the political stuff, not to, they're pretty docile for the most part. But their aspect is knocking on doors. And I'm sure everybody's probably had that experience where they feel like it is their job and their duty um, to go around and preach that word of God and to make sure that everybody has at least been exposed to it. 
that at the end of that, where everybody on this planet has been exposed to it, then Armageddon will come. The cycle will kind of go through. Um, what was that like being a kid and believing in Armageddon? What that do to you? I think it's it's, it's like, kind of nice to be honest. Oh, really? Yeah, I would say so because you're certain. Like I'm uncertain of everything at this point in my time in my life. Like I I feel like I'm living in the unknown, an unknown state constantly. Um, even coming here to talk with you this is just something that yeah. pops up. And like if it seems like a good opportunity, I go and do. It. I don't know what I'm getting into, but that state versus a state of knowing this is the way it is. It's very simple. These are the things that you do. This is all you have to be concerned of. Um, it's a very simple simple life, um, and it was comforting for sure until you become aware that there are alternatives and then it becomes a little what bit What was like a, the first, um, in, in Jungian psychology, I think it's called like a Fisher King wound where you realize that everything you've been experiencing is, is a lie and that you have to carve way out. So what was that moment for you? We realized like it hit you in like a punch in the face like, holy fuck, this is all, I don't say bullshit, this is all not serving me. It yeah. is, it, that wound healed during COVID. Um, which is a, a, an interesting story, but I had a friend come over and I've been into CrossFit and Olympic lifting. And so I had a bar, uh, weights and my friend came over that I'd known from that and we were lifting and we got into a conversation that just created some anger in me. And I had been doing pretty well with myself and this stirred something up that I had really not interacted with in a little while. And I was like, why did I feel that? Like, where did that come from? So I immediately, as soon as we got done working out, we we're fine. We had our conversation, kind of smoothed things over, but she left and I, I just went to my room and I sat there and I sat with that feeling. And what that feeling was, was this, that wound that came up and it was my mom leaving the church. Um, she left, she like decided she was not going to participate anymore. She was living in here in Texas at the time I was living in Maine. And I remember getting a phone call or my dad getting a phone call. It was my mom. He's like, hey, your mom needs to tell you something. And she got on the phone with me and she's like, I'm being disfellowshipped, which is basically excommunicated from the religion. And I dropped to the floor, just crushed my world because I knew what it meant. And what it meant was that I was not going to be able to talk to my mom anymore. That was, those were the rules. Like if someone is knows better and then leaves it and they are disfellowshipped or excommunicated, you don't talk to that person. doesn't matter if it's family, friends, so you, you were still You were still Jehovah's Witness at this point? I, that was 14, 15 years old. Okay. Yeah. And it just crushed me. It was like the person that had wow. led me to believe these things and had been guiding me through this entire time. And I mean, I'm super close to my mom. Like it mattered. And the fact that she was no longer going in there, it just, it opened the door. I couldn't see it the same after that, um, but it hurt. I mean, tremendously in that moment, I didn't know what to do with it. How do I process this? Like everything that I've believed is now competing with my love for you my didn't mother. You did talk to her after that? For how long? I did. Yeah, oh, okay. I couldn't do it. <laughs> That's what broke you. Yeah, it, was, it crushed me because it, it created this, this rift in the system. The system was whole and complete because everything I knew was stable and there. And then all of a sudden, the person that I cared for the most got taken out of there. Yeah. And I was like, what is this? Like, what do I even do with this? And I was angry at her for sure. It took me a long time to do and, that. Uh, I've, I've, I'm pretty fascinated by, by cults. I mean, I have to be, I'm going to be real. I don't know how you feel about it. It sounds like it's kind of a cult. 100%. Um, well, they one, say a cult is like a, a religion is just a cult with more followers, like, yeah, but, but at its one core. One of the core, uh, I've done a lot of research on the, the psychology of cults and uh, the only way, one of the ways that, the only way that most people get out of cults is a is a loved one leaving and being like you can do this and 
this is a, all an illusion. You're being brainwashed, which is why most cults will basically try and um, excommunicate you from your family. Like if you're in a cult, they basically take away all contact with, with loved ones outside of it, especially people who've left the cult. Yeah. That's like one of the key ways. So it's interesting hearing you that your experience that took a, your, your most loved one leaving to make you make you leave. Yeah, it, it is because it's such an insulated environment and they're controlling a lot of the information that you're receiving. Like they're not saying don't go read any other books. They're just providing enough noise and information and regular attendance to church, regular studying that you're kind of consumed with it. So you're never really having enough space to look around and examine. And they're also saying, hey, we've gone and looked at these things and we're going to tell you what they say. So there's a filter on yeah. everything that's coming in. And so it does. It takes somebody who, an explorer, somebody who is a risk taker, an outlier that sits there and walks away and then shows that they're doing okay. And when you do that, I've noticed that with friends that are still in, in the religion or friends that have left and haven't really found it. What, they're looking for somebody that's figured out a better way than the way they knew. And if they see that, and it looks like a viable path, they'll follow it. So as a as a cult, you would definitely want to prevent that because it is the easiest way to get out. Yeah. Um, to, to figure that out on your own, I don't know what it would have taken. I may not have ever figured it out. I still have friends, some of my best friends that I grew up with, I no longer talk to them, can't. Still love them to death. Um, even my sister, she's still a Jehovah's Witness. And I, I managed to like bend the rules a little bit because that's just the, <laughs> the way I am. I walked away. I told them I was walking away. I wasn't doing anything that was against the religion when I separated myself. So I was never technically disfellowshipped. But my sister and I love her to death. She's an amazing, intelligent human being. But she still battles with that. And I remember my her wedding. Um, she The guy that was performing her wedding was a Jehovah's Witness. And he told her that like she could not have my mom at the reception if if he was going to speak at a wedding. And my sister had to make that choice and you saw it ripping her apart I mean, going through that. So it's, yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a journey for sure. It's rough, man. I often think that political division is tough, but that's, that's a whole other game. Like how has that affected your heart that, you know, your, your sister or family members, people you love are in that space where, I mean, it just shows your growth. Because you choose to, you know, say that your language, like I still love them so much, that you're not kind of getting divisive or hateful at all with them. No, not at all. Yeah. No. yeah. I, I, it took a little while to get there, um, for sure. And I think I was trying to change her for a while and trying to, like, show her these options. But we had a conversation one time, and I watched – it was actually a conversation with my – watching my mom. We were watching my little brother's uh, football game. And my sister barely ever came up. And she came up to watch my little brother's football game, and my mom was kind of on her. And I was just like, this is how we're spending this moment. Like, she's here. I'm so excited that she's here. And I kind of talked with her afterwards. And then I had a conversation just to figure out, like, where where did our viewpoints diverge? And what I found in that conversation was that our viewpoints diverged at a space that was so deep that I would do more harm in trying to change it. And that that was not a wise path to take, that I should just take whatever I can get um, and accept, just accept the way that it is. And so now whenever we talk, we have Wonderful conversations. They're rare, but we have wonderful conversations, and I get to treasure that moment even though they are they are rare. So I think – let's try and create a strategy. <laughs> I think – I believe that the biggest issue we're facing right now is division. I do. I think that this separateness we've created is, is an illusion. It sounds cliche, but I think you will truly believe yeah. we're all one. We're we've all taken one. uniqueness and turned it into yeah. I'm different than you, and so we should <laughs> – yeah, We're all one. I mean, more so even like politically over you know beliefs, religions, like – 
we're in a space where most people can't talk to each other, like, you know, especially politically. That's dumb, but it's like, you know, it is dumb. Like, we're in a space now where if I say, you know, I, I voted for someone or someone else does, then it's like, I can't talk to this person. Yeah. So, with your experience, how would you recommend people go about that journey of, of healing division, of not feeling so separate from people who think differently or believe differently no matter what it is, and why it's important to do that? Curiosity is the key component. Um, so I know as a Jehovah's witness, I knew I was right. There was judgment immediately in any conversation that came into it. I knew I was right. There was one way to do these things. And what I've learned over time is that there's not, there's many ways to do things. I just got done reading uh, Rick Rubin's book on, uh, creativity. I think it's the creative lifestyle or I can't remember the name of it. Creative act. Creative act. Yeah. It's brilliant. One of these things he says is collaboration is where you enter a room and any idea is, is a possibility. And so you explore those ideas and you check them out and you're just there to find the best way forward, regardless of whose idea it is. And that's something that I've really tried to incorporate myself. I didn't have the language around that until reading that book, but it is, it's, it's approaching every conversation with curiosity and trying to understand not to win. Like if you're trying to win and be right, you cannot be curious. You know you're right already. And so I'm going to start a conversation with you and be like, oh, well, who do you like from a political standpoint? Well, they're an idiot. Like, no. Why? Why do you like them? What is it about them that you gravitate towards? Because I'm trying to deepen my understanding of a person and we're not going to agree on everything. That's impossible. It's, it's asinine to even think that's the case. But I can deepen my understanding of you to understand where you're coming from. And that can help build and foster a relationship. And then there may be other areas where we do agree and that we do get along and we can collaborate. But approaching every conversation with curiosity rather than judgment, I think, is a key factor in there. And that requires a deep understanding of yourself and knowing that you don't know the answers and that there are possibly and very likely better way forwards than the way you're doing it. So if you're curious, you might find those. Whereas if you're judgmental, you're never going to find them. You and I could be talking about something that I completely disagree on. If I approach it with curiosity and seeking understanding, at the end of that conversation, I may have a better way forward and I may be able to improve myself as a result. But if I enter in judgment, I'll never know. Um, and that's just, that's not healthy for anybody. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's love versus hate. Yeah. In a sense, understanding someone is love. I, I truly think it is. You Positivity know? versus negativity. Like yeah. I sometimes wonder, just driving over here, I was thinking about this and... I like get that nervousness. You're going to something new. And I was like, is it nervousness or excitement? Like, and is the difference between nervousness and excitement positivity versus negativity? A positive mindset leads toward, hey, this is some exciting new thing that I don't know I'm going to get into. Anxiousness is more of that negative, like, oh, this could, this could screw up. It could be the worst type of thing. And I think that love versus hate is, again, a positive outlook versus a, a negative outlook. Judgment is a negative outlook. Curiosity is a positive outlook. Um, and being able to flip that switch and pr do these practices, change our minds in order to be more on the positive side than the negative side, I think helps us approach those, those conversations. Yeah, I, I, believe, I believe excitement is anxiety. But it's, um, it doesn't matter if, I think all that matters is your perception or understanding of yep. the situation itself. That's something I'm, I struggle with sometimes is that, you know, I, I try my best to, I probably align most with, with Buddhism out, out of anything and um, why it, it, it kind of battles with, with this, what we're talking about now is that 
I do know the power of perspective in the sense that whatever you believe or put your attention on or focus on will create the experience, like purely just whatever you, you whatever you perceive. As a, reality is a perception. It's not objective. What Buddhism says is objective reality is a reality. Move close to that. But sometimes you can you can live a better life or a more positive life with the perceptions of positivity. So for me, it's this battle of like, okay, is it better to choose a perception of the situation that leads me to have a better feeling? Or to actually just exist with what what is. If I'm anxious, I'm anxious. Yeah. If you know someone is being mean to me, they're being mean to me. It's okay. And it's just like this this battle of, of like when when do I choose this? You know, I think I choose it when I have to. You know, for example, if I'm doing an interview or something, I have to fucking kind of psych, psych myself out and go yeah. into it in that way. But if I'm alone and I you know and have space, I'll try and accept it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. how do you navigate that line between you know? creating perceptions of reality to create a positive experience yeah, or, or to or to just accept it as it is. For example, I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling this shit. That's, a, that's an interesting I don't know if I have an answer for that. I think I, <laughs> we I can, we can we can figure out an answer together then. Yeah, I, maybe maybe it's a practice. Maybe it's part of the practice is continuously trying and and I think even even in a situation where you are in a bad environment, say there's, there's something to learn and, and there's something to learn on how did I get into this bad environment? You can have a positive mindset on that as saying, this is a learning opportunity. Let's see what I can get out of this. Like, I don't want to be here. I, I don't want to be in this room right now that I, if I had a negative standpoint, I could be thinking that going, I don't want to be in here, but I can switch it into a positive format really quickly by just asking a question rather than throwing out a statement, which is that judgment side of things, approaching it again with curiosity and going, okay, I'm in here, not liking what's happening. What can I take from it? What can I learn from it? Yeah. How can I improve myself from that? That in itself kind of is still gravitates towards that, but it's not saying that this situation isn't a good situation. It might be a bad situation, but I can put a positive spin on it that doesn't leave me disillusioned and saying, hey, everything's great and fine. Like you're in a burning building. You're not going to sit there and go like, this is great. It's like a spa. And you're like lying to yourself. You need to get out of there. Get out. Like that is the option. But it's you don't have to sit there and going like dwelling on the fact that you're now sitting in a burning house and like all of the things that you could have done to not be there. That's not going to help anything. Having a positive outlook and going, okay, I got in here. What can I learn from this experience and how do I get out? Um, and I'll I'll be able to take that uh, lesson with me afterwards. Yeah, I think this, from that I can come with an answer is that do what you got to do, but just make sure you don't deny the sensation. I no, think that that's the key, right? It. Like if the trigger comes up or a negative sensation comes up, own it, feel it. But then you know the positive spin I think is the choice we should make in the sense yeah, that's of solid. Yeah. you know like don't deny the the internal reality, but also create a perception that keeps you in forward momentum you yeah know? i think it's i think we when we confront pain i i i think it's kind of binary what our mind does it either goes to victim victimhood yeah and like oh, why me like fuck this all this you know dark stuff or you know it's the other side of what you said which i use is that why am i why am i being gifted with this sensation right now like i love that gifted yeah, yeah. like why, why is this occurring in me to grow yeah like how can i grow from this and that to me, it doesn't deny it, but also gives me a, a way out. I think before when I was just starting this journey, I was in the, my first year and a half or, year, or two years in the journey, I was always fucking down because I hadn't felt all the depression, the grief that I hadn't felt yeah. for 21 years. So for that two years, I was always down. And then once I realized, oh, you know, you can actually feel this stuff and also put a perspective on it that keeps you moving forward and more positive. 
Yeah. Not to just sit in it, but to let it pass through, not to hold on to it, but to, again, let it be a conduit versus a vessel. I think that's actually the thing that I focus on the most. I I have a question for you. Like, when was the last time that you got mad, like genuinely mad? And was it a positive, like, did a positive impact come from it or a negative impact? Hey there. I'm going to give you a break to digest all of this amazing information. And in this break, if you like what you're listening to, please rate and review the podcast. Thank you. I get mad a good amount. I don't have anger issues. But yeah. About once a week, I'll have a temper tantrum. Yeah. Um, just because whenever my, I think we all deal with it, whenever my conception of what I want my life to look like is not looking that way, my body will react in, in a very angry manner. Yeah. And when I kind of... That's the signal to move, kind yeah, of. Like, yeah. Of, of when I get... I'll shame myself sometimes, which isn't good in those situations. Like, I'm past this. How can I be so egoistic to think that my way is the way that reality should match? Like, I'm not fucking God. Yeah, so yeah. I, I look at myself in that way like, dude, what the fuck are you doing, bro? Yeah. But at the same time, there's this energy in my system that is there. It's Energy can't be destroyed. It has to be transformed in some way. So I'll, you know, I'll do some like movement i'll do some humming or you know i'll get in a sauna and try and just kind of clear it out um but after it when it's cleared like when the energy is clear for some reason i'll get a perspective that i needed oh fuck that's what i needed to hear you got the lesson you know like uh, and actually like sits with me in some way yeah yeah i think all emotions are a signal and like we look at being angry as a negative thing it's not all like it, it doesn't have to be it can be a positive thing because it's telling you you need to move like this is not okay this is unacceptable to the body and the mind get out of the situation expressing that anger is a different story like <laughs> freaking out on some people and 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 then damaging relationships of stuff matters and that's something I've, I've struggled with a lot is like how do I exit from a situation that I don't want to be in where I am feeling those sensations that I'm angry at myself at the surroundings whatever it is i just move like (laughs) just move you can quietly move to a new a new place a new a new environment whatever it is to get yourself out of that situation but i do think like some of the things that we look at as a negative are exactly that they are emotions that are speaking to us and they're not bad they are they're good inherently because they're trying to guide us in the way that we need to go i argue this often on the podcast that it's a hot take but <clears throat> I do believe that most mental illness, depression, anxiety, you know, all those those hard negative emotions, anger, I think they're just a, a, a spiritual compass in the sense that they're trying to push us towards an expression of self that benefits our reality. You know, when I was depressed, it, it wasn't like, you know, I was told it was a chemical imbalance, which is just yeah, complete baloney. It's not true. I, I've done a lot of research to know it's not true. In, in extreme cases, maybe, and definitely not in mine. The solution was a pill, right? Yep. For me, the depression was basically some guidance, something in, in my system. I'm pretty woo-woo, but I'm trying to explain it more rationally. It was my internal body just being like, you cannot keep doing the shit you're doing. Yep. You can't keep eating fucking processed bullshit. You can't drink you know, three, four nights a week. You can't keep smoking weed. You can't keep taking drugs. You can't keep hanging out with people who are not benefiting you. Like, We have to, to back your point up, but we have to use these negative emotions as a feedback system to create the reality we have to live in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and paying attention to them. And if you put a negative spin to it, it makes it harder 
right? Like, you know, you have to move, but then you're shitting on yourself the entire time for it. That makes it more difficult to move than putting that optimistic or that positive spin on it. That's something I, that's taken me still, I still feel like I'm unwinding. I remember growing up and I probably had a pretty pessimistic viewpoint, but I would, these people were so happy sometimes and it would make me mad. I'm like, why? Like, what do you do? How can you always be happy? Like you're always putting this positive spin on it. And as I've gotten older and as I've worked on myself, I started to see the benefits of it. And some people do it differently. The the language matters. Not every positive, um, not the way everybody speaks about positivity is something that's going to be appealing to us. But nonetheless, they're doing their best to stay in a positive mindset, which I think is genuinely makes life easier. Um, that, that negative mindset makes challenging things more challenging. Um, going to the gym on a regular basis is something I've started to realize is that like your best, your, your best coach. And when you're sitting there grinding away and you're just getting your ass kicked at a workout, like you can sit there and be like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Or you can say, okay, we're going to get through this. There's 10 reps left. Like, and you're coaching yourself to be able to be a friend to yourself to get through those challenging moments. And I think that's what we have to do. Maintaining that positive mindset allows us to coach ourselves through difficult moments. Um, or you can be a douche to yourself and not a good friend to yourself and not show love to yourself and make it way harder. Yeah, to go back to your point on the, I just want to touch upon the positivity aspect. Uh, and going also touching upon our earlier point about the duality of feeling and also choosing a perception that I think with the positivity movement, where I think we get it wrong is that there's a difference between feeling something and choosing a positive spin and denying a feeling and just choosing a positive spin. 100%. I think they're, they're in the positive movement, there's a positive delusion, delusion existing that I know people that way. I, I, I was that way at some point in my life where I just couldn't bear to feel the trauma. I couldn't bear to feel so it was a denial, the pain. Yeah. It's a complete denial. Yeah. I just I know people like that that just completely live in this fairy tale land of positivity, which look, it's better than them living in a complete you know, wasteland yeah. of, of hell that I get it, I understand it. But at some point I've seen it, it comes back to bite them, whether it be, you know, some Because you're still not changing a situation. You yeah. may not be getting yourself out of a situation that your body is telling you you need to get out yeah. of. So it's like when the positivity, like, you know, just, just emphasizing this, you know, make if you're choosing positivity make sure you're also not denying how you feel yeah because that that's as you said like in a gym the gym's a great example right because you're feeling like shit in some way like i do i, I don't enjoy going to the gym you know if i'm you know it's the hardest thing i do every day yeah same here yeah. And i'm in there and like I'm like dude fuck this and I, I catch my mind doing that and it makes it harder but choosing while i'm feeling the resistance the actual resistance of muscle tension i tell myself i'm powerful i'm powerful i'm powerful i can do this i repeat those mantras each rep yeah I, it, just, it, it passes easier and it's that thing i'm not denying the resistance but I'm on top of the resistance. I'm adding this, this love, this, this belief. The in combination creates this momentum to to because you know it's in your best interest. Yeah. Like what you're doing, even though it is painful and challenging, is going to leave you a better person. We were talking about that earlier. The ice bath, like it's the hardest thing you do every day. You don't like it, but you go and do it. For me, meditation in the morning, yoga, like doing Yin yoga before I go to bed at night. Man, I resist that one so hard because. I'm getting into places in my body that are super uncomfortable right before I go to bed. Like, I want a bedtime story. <laughs> like, I want something nice and, and, and comfortable to, like, kind of soothe you and put you to bed. But what I've found is by addressing any of that that challenging stuff that's within my body, I've taken care of it on my own uh, – of my own accord. I've decided that I'm going to address – some of the stuff that might prevent me from sleeping before I go to sleep. And it's super hard, but then I sleep like a rock. Um, going to the gym is the same thing. I do not like those workouts. They are really hard. They are 
I want to say painful, but uncomfortable uh, almost every single time. That's where growth comes from. But you go and do it because of the results that it's going to give you. Um, and that's a, it's a key component to, again, a practice. It's, it's a practice of doing that on a regular basis and not leaving it to the world to just drop it on you. Yeah. I, I, one of the things I, I tell myself, I tell people is that discipline, I think, is one of the highest forms of self-love. Because it's true, you know, what in me is choosing, like every day, no, I don't want to get my ice bath. Don't want to work out most of the time. I don't want to eat the same fucking foods every day. I know to stay healthy. You know, I, I some part of me don't want to. You know, I've been sober for a long time. Like sometimes I think I'll be fun to do this. I've crafted a life where I'm mostly doing things I don't want to do. But the version of myself that's created is is a killer. Yeah. Like who I am now is a result of that cho- those choices I make every day. And if I didn't, I think self love can sometimes be like you think in the moment of like, oh, you know, I'm going to give myself comfort, get in bed, the snuggle, and sometimes that's true. But it's also the opposite of that. It's also choosing to walk in the fire every day to, to strengthen yourself. And, and that's, I think that's the, the person we become is that choice over and over again to do the things you don't want to do because you know that they benefit us in the, in the long run. How long have you been sober? Alcohol, about two to three years. Uh, weed, two years. And then psychedelics, about a year. And all drugs, yep. like three years. That's yeah. impressive. Yeah. I, so I've run into this... And I've run into my own stories of why I still do some of these things. And like, I don't drink nearly as much as I used to. I used to be a freaking lush man, like just getting after it. And I, I, it's rare that I ever drink at home. I, I never drink by myself. Like I never go for a beer, but I still go out and socialize and I'll have a drink. Um, and it's funny because I, I'm getting ready to go on a month long trip to Colorado um, I just finished building out my Jeep and like getting it ready to go do this. I've got a bunch of friends that are up there, family trip. And I was talking with my girlfriend the other day and I was like, I think I'm just going to get high for a bunch of this. And and, and when I said what that, kind of high? We, like, yeah, just okay. smoke. I mean, it's Colorado. Like, lines of coke. No, 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 for <laughs> sure. That's not my style. <laughs> but weed is one of those things. I, I didn't grow up with it. It's always, it's held my curiosity for a while. But in doing my daily practices, I've noticed that I don't like the sensation that I feel on a daily basis really being disrupted and even smoking disrupts it. Having a drink. That's why I'm sober, bro. Yeah. That the reason is exactly why I'm sober. I'm not an addict. Yeah. I used to definitely be a hard, hard drug addict, but I'm one of those people I don't believe once an addict, always an addict. I don't. Yeah. I think the addiction is caused by unhealed trauma in the body. I cleared that trauma. You know, that was a fucking pain in the ass to do that. I cleared it. I have no desires to do drugs. Yeah. But it's exact, exact reason. Dude, if I smoke, I'm super sensitive. Yeah. That's why I stopped about two years ago. I, I have like, you know, I think most weed now has around 25%, 30% TH- THC, yeah. which is like insane. You know, back in the 80s when it was this, you know, the chill revolution, it was like 5 6% THC. So even, I was like, oh, you know what, let me try it again two years ago. I started buying weed with 5 to 6% THC. Even then, the next day I'd noticed like a 7% dip in my chi, my life force. Yeah. I would notice my cognitive abilities drop like 7%. I noticed my anxiety increased a little bit, my depression increased a little bit. I thought, okay, if I do this every, every once a week for... My brain's crazy that way. For this year, how much more increase would I have? You actually sit there and sat there and yeah, broke yeah, it down. Yeah, for sure. Wow. And then I was yeah. like, I looked at it, I was like, holy fuck. Yeah, I don't no. think I want to see that. Yeah, I was, like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, no way I can do this. Just because yeah. like, I, I, I became very aware, thankfully, that like who you are every day over time creates the reality. So it's like, I can't change this, this formula. Like I, I know- it's compound interest, like, right? Like no, it's just like, building. Don't change the coach for winning. Yeah. Like this is a formula. No, no, sober, sober. I'm a killer right now. I don't mean the egoistic, but I'm, I'm doing very well. I'm happy yeah. for the first time in a long time. I, I can't change this. Don't shit. mess with it. Yeah. yeah, that's that's why. Yeah, it's something. It, it, it like bounces in and out of my awareness of how I stand on it, 
socializing, and especially when you make significant changes to yourself, especially quickly. Like I went 35 years just raging (laughs) or not 35 years, but from like when I left being a Jehovah's witness to that. So say in my early 20, like 21 to 35, 24 years, of just being an animal getting after it. And most of the people I know, know me in that way. And so when you start to make these changes, it's kind of disruptive. And I've noticed even entering into an environment when I choose not to drink, or if I don't drink much, it's a, it's providing a mirror for those that are around you. And you watch this uncomfortableness that can take over. I don't like that. I don't like doing that. So I'll usually just grab a drink and sit there and like, just to make sure I'm making other people comfortable, even though I know that I'm going to sleep like shit that night. Yeah, like that's it, not it's great weird, for man. me. It's this thing I noticed is that like miserable people want you to share the misery. 100%. It's just fucked up thing. When I'm sober, I feel good. Someone's trying to handle me. We don't want to be alone in our misery. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's that, man. It's that people hand me like a bottle of, of liquor and like down. I'm like, dude, why the fuck <laughs> would you want me who's happy chilling sober why would you want me to down a bottle of liquor people still do that now and they know you're sober no 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 now oh. I, I don't have, I have friends that do okay. that they're not my yeah. friends anymore but I'll yeah. be, if I'm in a new environment yeah. right like if I'm in a new group of people that they know I don't drink it's like try and convince me yeah. like, I, I don't judge them I look at the societal wound it's like why, why? Yeah. Who, like I used to do the same shit like why did I used to push alcohol on my friends and don't want to drink because it made me feel like I was a piece of shit it made me feel looking at them living a good life living healthily made me realize Fuck, I'm not that. I'm not that. And I, and, I make, and I have to make them join my misery so I don't feel, you know, like I'm, like I can't be that person. Yeah. It's, you know, so, but then I don't give a fuck. If someone yeah. is like, I have no, I don't care if you think I'm strange or yeah. insane or I'm not that's beautiful. shit. You know, yeah. there's, there's, there's fucking no way. I think that's something I'm still struggling with. And I, I think where it stems from is having to lose. It's, it's again, one of these scars that you're continuously unwinding. Um, but I lost all of my friends, a tremendous amount of my family when I stopped being a Jehovah's witness, that was the cost of making that decision. I knew it. I was well aware of it, but I, I needed more. And so I sought that out. And what I've noticed, especially as doing my own, doing that inner journey and and working on myself is how much attachment I've had to friendships, relationships, whatever they are that are no longer serving me because I'm afraid of losing it and having to start over because that shit hurts. Yeah, that's beautiful um, self-awareness, man. That's, I, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the ugly reality is that you kind of have to lose them. Yeah. Look, I, I've, I've, yeah, it's brutal. I've lost almost everyone in my life. It had to be that way, you know? And it sucks, especially with your, with your wounding, but I wish I had a better answer. I don't think there's another way. It's more of like eventually doing that work until you can't unsee it and that it's the loudest thing. And that's where I think raising awareness and doing practice. You don't feel that when you're with, I don't know who these people are, but if you're with them, like I notice, I I believe in, in, I know about frequencies that like people are on certain frequencies. And then if you're on similar ones, you attract. Like right now you and I, we're we're synthesizing. Like I feel just like a a natural rapport. It's easy to talk to. Yeah, it's easy. We're in the same frequency, right? When I go to bars or a club or pe- or, or you know, friends of mine are still drinking or, or doing drugs or in that wounded frequency, I, I feel weird around them. I, yeah. I, can't, I feel like this this, this um, blockage. I can't feel like myself. You don't feel that when you're around people. One hundred percent. But I'm stubborn and I'm yeah. like, maybe I can help. Like yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. that's that's that. It's probably that savior complex from being a Jehovah's Witness as well or a privileged white male or whatever you want to call it. Like th- there is a desire to help. Like I have a strong desire to help. And so I tend to probably put myself in situations and around people 
that I, I may be able to help. And what I'm, what it was starting to shift, I, I actually saw this, I can't remember where I read it, but it was talking about the hero's journey and that being a phase like a phase. And then what happens is you start to get into the creative side of things. And I've been going through that shift pretty recently where I've realized that, okay, it may not necessarily be my presence. That is the thing that can help someone. It may be the output of the things that I've learned um, that, that can help. And maybe that's where I need to start focusing. And so I'm going through a shift right now of doing that where I feel like I need to be in the room to being like, okay, maybe it's my refined voice that needs to be heard rather than just my presence being there. And maybe that's a more effective way to help. Yeah, dude, 100%. Like when, when I was, I'm going to say this, like I am sound like I'm, I'm more experienced than you, which I'm not. It's just in my own experience that. I mean, I'm sitting on your podcast, so you're obviously expressing yourself. When I first woke up, I was like, I was so invested in meeting and hanging out with my old friends to change them, to be like, oh man, I, I, I was you. I was you. I I know what it's like to live life outside of these wounds, but they're not going to fucking change, bro. Like, and my actually my real point is they might change, but the only way they'll change is through art. I really believe that in the sense that I I realize just watching you know how how culture reacts to movies, right? If you have like a movie with a powerful fable or a powerful story, it changes everyone in that room because they're not forced into it. They're they've changed through artistic presence that I can't change someone by, by yapping at them being like you have this trauma I can see it I can see it like that no one wants to fucking listen they don't want to change the only thing that changes them is content is, is artistic um, expression the story yeah, it's, yeah. It's and the stories way, that man. you can relate to it's and connect way. with yeah I agree way. and I think that's something that I'm in my journey like just kind of getting into or vulnerability in, in sharing your story mm -hmm. like I've noticed in the, in the things that cause the most change in my work isn't me going on a rant about how to educate someone. It's me being vulnerable by my story. That has the most effect. Yeah. Just because people hate feeling like they're being told something. Yeah, nobody you likes know. being told what to do. Yeah. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> yeah. So it's that, that, and I think the way I put it, I heard phrases is, you know, the hero's journey becomes the, the artist's journey. Yep. That the hero's journey, to summarize people, the hero's journey is basically you, how do you, you know what, you're, you're the guest. You define the, the, the hero's journey. How do you find it in your eyes? I mean, it's 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 being an explorer to some degree, going off to do like I mean, the hero's journey as I understand that it, its kind of root is like when a warrior would go off, defeat like the dragon or whatever, and then they come back and then they share that story with their with their tribe. That's kind of the most simplistic yeah. way I could explain but then it. Internally, the inner work piece piece of that is it's a metaphor for the internal reality that we are the hero and the war is our internal war. Yep. That us venturing into our own chaos, our own trauma, and coming out wounded but alive is our own journey. And the artist's journey is taking the lessons and the experience from that journey and sharing it into art. So can we be both? Yeah. Yeah. We can be both, I right? I think so, yeah. And the, and the dance is constantly doing that, right? New awareness. Yeah. New venture to trauma. Taking the journey, yeah. the adventure. Getting yeah. wounded, feeling, the, getting the, the wisdom and the insights, channeling that into art. Yeah. Rinse repeat over, over and over again, and that's a cyclical thing that I know I'm I'm starting to work on, and and really finding the rhythm of that is actually kind of difficult. Like especially if you've been doing the work for a long time, is where is it? And it's funny because I've it, awareness is just a an amazing thing or a funny thing in general. I've just started to realize. I thought I went on a really long gap without creating, and I was like. As I started to look at it, I created that psychedelic journey. And it's one of those things I've started to share more. And I didn't realize that it was an expression, but it's a musical expression. It's, I mean, 
it's changed the vehicle that I drive to make sure that it's more accessible. It's changed where I spend my time in the wintertime. Um, who I spend my time with, all of those things has gone there, but it's been a creative expression that took me years to develop to go out there and do that. And now that I've refined that one, I put a ton of energy into work for a long time. And then that kind of, I'm unemployed right now, starting a new job in September. Um, but realizing that I was dumping so much energy into someone else's dream and trying to turn it into mine, I found this gap again. And I'm going, where is that creative expression? And it's funny. Do you funny. think that, that unemployment was a gift in some oh, way? Oh, 100%. Yeah. How, how so? And was it tough for you to accept initially? I don't think it's any different than a, than a mushroom trip if you're paying attention. Like it, it, I, needed, I needed a kick in the pants to, to realize where I was spending my time, where it, it was a, there was a black hole of where I was spending my time. I was putting a tremendous amount of energy into something and not getting it back. It was not a reciprocal place. It was just a black hole. Um, and so I, I am a stubborn person. Like I hold on to, I still have those attachment issues that I'm unwinding. And if I find something that I really like or someone that I really like, I'm going to try to give everything that I can. And sometimes that's just not the best way. So with work, I needed to be booted out of there in order to do it. And I tried my hardest. I left knowing that I tried my hardest, which is a beautiful thing, but I also needed to leave because I needed to put that energy elsewhere. And the funny thing is, is that elsewhere I had already crafted and it's just been sitting there waiting for me to express myself through it rather than dumping my energy into other avenues. Um, but that creative expression and getting into that cycle is like, it's my biggest challenge right now is how do I get into create a creative habit? And that doesn't exist with me yet. That's something that I'm like starting to flirt with and go through. So yeah, this guest on my podcast share the concept of, of feather bricks sent me that the universe will give us hints of to change for a feather like telling you like the, your body like yeah. you know tickle, change tickle. a little bit and then a brick is like losing losing yeah. a job you know yeah. oh fuck I have to change and if you stay stubborn like that it's a semi truck then it's you know brutality how hard do you need to learn this lesson yeah yeah, yeah like for me it was um, like when I experienced it it was when my my mom died I I, uh, I used to use working out you know, maybe I am an addict in some way because I'm addicted to, to working out and staying healthy. So for me, like, I needed... It's a pretty good addiction. I, I needed that. I need that every day. Some, some, whether it's playing sports, lifting weights, I need something... Is that maintenance or an addiction? I think it, it's both because I need it. Like, I, I, I need it. I think we're human and we're meant to move or evolve. To, it's a tricky one. I haven't exactly wrapped my head around it. Anyway, anyways, like I do need that, like, every day, midday. Yeah. I have a dump just to go to the gym, do something active. It's a big part of my mental health. And I was really relying on it because I, I was sober, still sober at the time when she died, that I needed it to to get something, some positivity to take care of my family. So I was the only one that was somewhat, because I'd done the work, I stayed level-headed the whole time. So I needed to support people. I needed to support myself. But I knew that I was bypassing feeling the grief. And I knew I got a feather of it. I was like, Lucas, you're using this to, to avoid your feeling. I need to work out though. Then I, I was playing basketball. And I have ter- I've had ankle issues my whole life, and I was trying to play in college, all that kind of stuff. And I destroyed my ankle. I knew I, I broke it, tore ligaments. So I was like, F- I'm fucked. Like, the university motherfucker. Like, I, I have to. This was after your mom passed away? Yeah, I have okay. to. I can't work out. Like, I have to just do nothing. And then I was like, you know what? I have one good foot. So I go hobble into the gym on one foot, and I started lifting weights, you know, and doing movements one, with one foot up. Yeah. And I was like, and then this is when I really, ble- that, the notion hit me, whereas I was literally like walking down the most feeble steps like the easiest steps ever i tripped and destroyed the other ankle oh my god like destroyed it 
And then I, I, one of the first times I've cried from pain in a long time, it, it wasn't pain, it was like frustration of like, and I was with my family, I was like being a baby, I was weeping. So I was like, I knew what it meant. I knew it, it wasn't the pain, it was that, man, I, I know for two months, at le- three months at least, I have to sit down and feel. I can't, I can't move. No escaping it anymore. I, I literally can't walk. Like, you know, after months, I have to sit and feel this grief. But it was a fucking, thank God. Thank fucking God, man. Because looking at my, my people who react to the situation not the same, didn't feel it, they're fucked. Like, I can see them, you know, I love them, but there's still a lot of wounding in them. For me, it was like the fact that I had that space to just feel. Thank fuck, man. Because I, I, I can now be who I am now and not have to be so heavy with that stuff. That was just, that's my experience. That I'm like, yeah, you know. So it's amazing how space, empty space, allows us to do that. Uh, getting back to the beginning of the conversation with the mushroom trips, that's something that I that I do with people. Is so I have a three hour playlist that I play during during the experience, and people mostly think it's a three hour playlist. It's not just a three hour playlist. What's that? Like music? Or? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's. You're not playing death metal and heavy rap. No, no, no. <laughs> I've played around with that, but it doesn't, it takes people to weird spaces. Um, but the, the playlist itself is, it's curated to help you touch on every emotion that's there. But what I ask people to do afterwards is like, you're trying to download that information and kind of capture it. So journaling is a huge aspect of it. But the thing that I ask them to do twice afterwards is to re-listen to that three hour playlist. And for one, it's to try to remember like the experiences that were happening. You can't, you can't remember all of that information. Um, and that's, that's kind of what I lead with as far as the why. This is to help you remember. So I ask them to do it twice, two weekends in a row afterwards. Mostly it's around setting three hours aside to take care of yourself. And for them to make that active effort after the end of taking a weekend to take care of themselves, don't go right back into your normal life. Like, take a breather. And if you can set aside three hours to sit there and listen to that playlist, two weekends in a row immediately afterwards, what happens the weekend afterwards? You might think differently about how you're going to treat that weekend and how you're going to treat yourself during it. And that space is necessary because without it, we're constantly just stimulation. We're, we're importing information. We're constantly downloading information. There's never a time for it to come up for you to feel those feelings. And if you're constantly suppressing them with noise, the noise of your insides cannot come up. And it requires stillness. It requires silence (laughs) to be able to allow those things to fully express themselves and to feel them. And the more you let yourself do that, the more it happens. But you can start to get into a rhythm if you turned it into a practice where then it's not overwhelming. It becomes just a normal part of the day of feeling and and understanding where you're at and realizing, you know what, today might not be a good day to push myself. Like I'm sensitive. I'm hurting. Something else is dwelling up. If I go, am I going to get a brick that day because I'm pushing myself or can I listen to the feather that I encountered for me in my meditation in the morning that that allows me to kind of dictate where my day is going to go? I think if you feel right now into the energy of society, I think we're more in pain than we've ever been. I really feel it intensely. Like I'm, I'm super sensitive to the kind of stuff and I really feel we're in a lot of pain. And we can always think of that, right? If you think of, you know, you know, even me, I'm, I'm young, but when I was, you know, the early 2000s, I was like, I know, I know it's nostalgia, but part of it felt better. Like, you know, it wasn't as hectic. And I think why, I always try, why is this so different right now? I think it's because we don't, we don't have space. I think I, I, I phones think, and you've got an Apple watch or whatever that's constantly begging for your attention. There's never, never a moment we have to 
if we're looking at solutions to that, because I agree, I, I think the noise is suppressing our emotions so that we can't hear ourselves as individuals and as a society. That suppressed emotion causes neuroses. Yep. Yeah. It's making us crazy. Um, and so learning to set aside that time and to be quiet is there. But I guess like you can listen to the feather when it's quiet or you can feel the feather when it's quiet and you're not being stimulated like crazy. But we're so stimulated, we require the brick more often or the semi-truck to actually get us to listen, which is tends to be a destructive experience rather than an evolutionary one. It's like this revolutionary thing where, oh my God, the wheels just came off and then I had to change. That's a, that's a crappy way to grow. <laughs> that's a disruptive way to grow. Um, so I think we're kind of encountering this time in our society where hopefully awareness is getting raised enough that we have control over this and that we can intentionally quiet ourselves down enough to listen to that little feather tickle, that gentleness of evolutionary change versus the loudness of a revolutionary shift. Um, and that's society goes up and down and falls. And like, can we make those ups and downs a little bit yeah. less violent? Unfortunately, I, I, to that perspective, I think that people, I think we're going to have a split. People are going to either go deeper into this numbing of constant stimulation I think it's going to get worse for a lot of people. But on the flip side, there's a lot. What's beautiful about it is there's a fuck ton of space like never before to heal. Like there's, there's right there now. if you go looking for it. Yeah, right now there's so much. And, and also to it, there's, you know, if we're in a war uh, of, of, you know, positivity versus negativity, dark versus light, right now, we have so much space to dominate that, that, that route because everyone's just on their phones all the time. Everyone's distracted. Everyone's numbing all the time. If you choose to go the other way, it's a game over. Like you will, do I hate to use the language because it's egoistic, but you will, you will dominate everyone else in, in the sense of the domination of love and happiness. Yeah. You will be much happier and much more loving and live a better life than almost anyone. Well, we're connected. It's easier for you to get your message out with this podcast and Instagram and all, all the social medias to those people who are in that state listening to noise. The question is, can we just shift the channel yeah. <laughs> a little bit to the, where it helps raise the yeah. awareness, which is, I don't know what everybody's social media looks like, but that's to me, one of the biggest tools that we have to programming ourselves is unfollow everything <laughs> Go intentionally follow the things that are going to make you better. If you use social media and, and AI and computers and tech in that way, you can craft yourself into an amazing being in a way that could never be done before with so much knowledge, but we're doing it mindlessly. And that is, there's a tool, how are you using it? Whatever you give your consciousness to, attention to, creates a reality. You know, if you're always looking at divisive political bullshit or pop culture gossip all the time your mind will reflect that when you're quiet alone in your life you will start attracting things that match that and you'll start thinking that way validating your point you know you have to be very careful with what you you give your mind sure you, know, you, you become aware of that there's being very conscious of what you kind of give your attention to yeah 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 100 percent. like I, and again it's an evolution you're not perfect in any way but going through and slowly doing the like raising the awareness doing the work and then maintaining it or creating systems that maintain your ability to keep yourself in that phase i think is a key a key aspect of it there's this um it's like a zen saying and i'm terrible at recalling some of these things but i i think as it goes is like there's a a monk that walks into a monastery and he asks, asks the master he's like um i, I want to learn from you and so the monk or the the master goes to the monk he goes have you eaten breakfast? And the monk goes, yes. And he goes, wash your bowl. And the monk was enlightened. 
And so it is that process of like, you did the thing, you consume the information, you did it, now do the work. Like you have to do the maintenance on the other side. And I think with that noise that comes in, we're constantly in this consumption phase, consume, consume, consume. And it's not allowing us to do the maintenance that we need to do to maintain a good quality of life. But it's there. It's possible. There's people talking about it. It's everywhere. Um, and I think it's, oh, you gotta, again, have that optimistic viewpoint that it can be done. Otherwise, you won't do it. It's a powerful point to, to end on. I think a theme of this podcast was just a lot of awareness. The power of awareness, you're someone who's very aware, I can just feel it and, and see it in you. And there's a beauty in that, but it becomes destructive if you don't create space. It becomes almost uh, psychotic if you don't create space to nourish that awareness, to realize this, okay, you realize this thing about yourself, take space to heal it, to understand it, to forget about it for a bit and, and live your life. But if you're, have, if you're realizing, you know, if you're having 30 different points of awareness a day, of all these different things you're doing wrong, it can cause neuroses. So it's a delicate balancing act. But I want to thank you so much for, for coming on and, and sharing all your wisdom, man. It's, it's a pleasure, man. I, I rarely meet people who have the level of awareness that um, I think is beneficial to society, and you definitely have it to a, a large degree. Um, so where can people find you and learn more about your, your work? Um, I mean, there's my Instagram page, which is where I kind of tell my story constantly. I feel like we're in a movie that's constantly being told or a book that's constantly being written. So I put most of my stuff on there. Um, it's Derek S. Burton on Instagram. And then where most of my attention is right now is on my nonprofit called Keep Austin Neighborly, which I think is focused on doing this, which is bringing attention to the people within our community who are helping to improve it. Um, I think those people are typically very humble people and they're not asking to be seen, but I think as a society, we need to see them. So my whole focus of that is to help bring the creative attention that can help tell their stories in a beautiful way and help them get the resources and the support that they need to continue their actions. Oh, man. So, I know that. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, it's it, it has changed my perspective tremendously by focusing on those people who are doing good um, and realizing how many of them are out there. They're just kind of under the radar, and I hope to, hope to be able to change that. Well, it gives that. you hope in humanity. I think right now it's easy to think that everyone is kind of a piece of shit and fucked <laughs> and angry and depressed, and then then you're going out and seeking beauty, which is which is obviously makes you probably believe in humanity. For sure. More. Yeah. Even more so, I notice it where I'm just like, man, am I crazy? Because like, <laughs> this place looks awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I know not everybody's carrying that, but it is where you put yourself and what you surround yourself sure. with, and yeah. I see that on a regular basis because of, of, of that work. So Awesome. Well, thank you again, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate your time, Lucas. It was great to be here. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please make sure to subscribe to the podcast as well as rate and review. Thank you for listening.